There are some films that are so richly textured, you can examine them from several vantage points. Each position giving fresh insight into not just their content and style, but filmmaking itself. And in turn, those films can then reflect back deep truths about cinema, culture and life itself. Aguirre the Wrath of God is one such film. Written and directed by Werner Herzog in 1972 and starring Klaus Kinski in the title role, it depicts the phantasmagorical descent into madness of a group of 16th century Spanish conquistadors as they make their way deep into the Peruvian jungles in an insatiable search for the legendary city of El Dorado. As such, Herzog's film is itself a river, the story constantly flowing to bring us to valuable ports on history, film production, use of location, the use of music, and the relationship between director and lead actor. This was the first collaboration between Herzog and Kinski, and they would go on to work together four more times in the next 15 years. Nosferatu, Wojciech, Fitzcarraldo and Cobra Verde. Which puts the duo in elite and interesting company. Several directors and actors have united over numerous films, to the point that sometimes critics rather lazily refer to the actor as the director's alter ego. But that is usually on the assumption that all collaborations are between male directors and male actors. John Ford and John Wayne, Akira Kurosawa and Takashi Shimura, John Huston and Humphrey Bogart, Francois Truffaut and Jean-Pierre Léo, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, Spike Lee and Denzel Washington. Before there was any such thing as a Republican or a Democrat, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Mason or an Elk, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Jew or a Christian, we were black people. In fact, before there was any such place as America, we were black. While many of those collaborations work, concentrating on them alone means that you run the risk of overlooking seminal films and partnerships between directors and actresses. D.W. Griffith and Lillian Gish made seven films together, including Orphans of the Storm, Broken Blossoms and Way Down East. Joseph von Sternberg and Marlene Dietrich also made seven, including The Blue Angel, Shanghai Express and The Scarlet Empress. Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina again with seven, including Vivago Savi, Pierre Olofou and Alphaville. Back to America, you have John Cassavetes and Gina Rowlands, once more with seven, including Minion Maskovitz, a woman under the influence, and Gloria. Boy, why don't you take a walk? We'll take care of that kid. You got that book, kid? Come here. Hey, Frank. What are you gonna do? Shoot a six-year-old Puerto Rican kid on the street? You don't know nothing. He don't even speak English. In Britain, Mike Lee and Leslie Manville have made, wait for it, seven films together including Life is Sweet, Topsy Turvy and Another Year. Which might make you wonder, is seven the magic number or the absolute limit? I say that because moving to Japan, Kenji Mitsuguchi and Kinuo Tanaka did no less than 15 films together, resulting in at least three masterpieces, The Life of Oharu, Ujetsu Monogatari and Sancho the Bailiff. Back to Europe and more up to date, Taylor Almodovar has worked with a host of actresses. Carmen Maura, Cecilia Roth, Rossi de Palma, Marisa Paradis, Lola de Wainat, and Penelope Cruz. In such films as Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, All About My Mother, Talk to Her, Volver, and Julieta. As for the arthouse giant Ingmar Bergman, himself and Harriet Anderson, Ingrid Hulen, Bebby Anderson, and Lee Vullman 
worked together on, amongst many others, Summer with Monica, Smiles of a Summer Night, The Seventh Seal, The Silence, Persona, Shame, and Cries and Whispers. Moving south to Italy, we meet the husband and wife team of Federico Fellini and Giulietta Messina, with La Strada, Knights of Cabiria, Juliet of the Spirits, and Ginger and Fred. The list could go on and on, so here is the point. Either when promoting their respective films, or reminiscing about their work, very rarely if ever have any of those collaborators had a bad word to say about each other. Which is precisely what makes Werner Herzog's collaboration with Klaus Kinski so exceptional and fascinating. Here is Herzog an interview with David Letterman from 1982. Uh, did you uh, pull a gun on Klaus? Well, there are some, some crazy reports about that. I must <laughs> see, he, he had an argument with a sound assistant. He demanded from me ultimately that I should dismiss the man and it was all Klaus's fault. I said, no, I won't dismiss him. And he said, I'm going to fire him. And I said, no, you don't do that. Mm -hmm. So he said, I'm going to leave. And that was 10 days before the end of shooting. And he packed everything and went into the speedboat. And I came unarmed, of course. And I spoke quite with a soft voice. And I told him I, I would shoot him. He would reach the next river bend. And he would ha have eight bullets in his head. And, and the last would, would be for me. So the man has instincts. And he knew it was no joke anymore. <laughs> Now here is Kinski in a separate interview, again with Letterman, but from 1983, giving his version of events. Okay, now let, let's go back. Now let's talk about that story. The story was that he uh, says that you pulled a gun on him. Yeah, no, he said we, there was just a mess, and I mean uh, uh, it was very exhausting there. But mm -hmm. and we arrived at night without having eaten anything for 24 hours. Everybody fell in the mud and really thing. And I just screamed out. I said, "Okay, if this is going to continue, I'm the first one who's going out, right. going away." And he said, "If you go away, I kill you." I said, "This is just what I'm waiting for." Just so and, it actually but I happened. Had a, I had a I had was the only one who had a Winchester rifle in the jungle. He didn't have a gun. Oh, so, so he he threatened you. He said, "I'll I'll kill you." Yeah, but he didn't have the gun. He didn't have. You gun. had the gun. <laughs> but you. That's a far cry from Kinski's initial reaction to Herzog's script. Herzog had written a screenplay during a feverish fortnight in the summer of 1970, much of it in longhand as he travelled about Germany on a tour bus filled with footballers. Once completed, Herzog sent it to Kinski, sensing that he was the only actor who could play the part. So unrestrained was Kinski's response that he telephoned Herzog in the middle of the night, and although they had met each other only on a handful of occasions, and even though this would only be Herzog's third feature film, and even though the budget would be absolutely minuscule, Kinski signed on to head off to Peru, halfway up the Andes and down into its deep valleys to row along the Amazon rivers. And that became the main source of antagonism between actor and director. But just as rivers have served as places for settlement, think of the Mississippi and the cities of Minneapolis, Memphis and New Orleans, the Nile and Juba, Khartoum and Cairo, the Danube and Vienna, Budapest and Belgrade, and the Yangtze River and Wuhan, Yangshu and Shanghai. So too have rivers inspired many great sequences in cinema. In Griffith's Way Down East, a distraught Lillian Gish faces her death in an ice float as it drifts towards the rapids. In Jean Vigo's Latland, a young couple living on a barge slowly make their way along the canals from an idyllic countryside toward the temptations of Paris. In Jean Renoir's Partie de Campagne, a young woman experiences her first orgasm with her erstwhile lover in a rowboat nestling on a riverside. In Charles Lawton's only film as director, Night of the Hunter, 
two young children flee their murderous father-in-law, their terror somewhat eased by the wonder and beauty of nature under moonlight. And then, perhaps most famously, there is John Huston's The African Queen, starring Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. You are a liar, Mr. Allnard. And what is worse, you are a coward. Ooh, coward yourself. You ain't no lady. No, miss. That's what my poor old mother would say to you. My poor old mother would hear you. Whose boat is this, anyway? I asked you on board because I was sorry for you on account of you losing your brother at all. A thoroughly entertaining love story between Mr. Charlie Allnott and Miss Rosie Sayer, The African Queen is a 1951 adaptation of C.S. Forrester's 1935 novel set in World War I. But neither of them barely question, address or even acknowledge the effects of colonialism. Is that necessary? Well, yes, because I did say they barely acknowledge it. Which is to say they do acknowledge it, but only by framing colonialism as a benign brother of the missions bringing Christianity to the natives. And then the only critique both the novel and the film make is by declaring not imperialism, but German imperialism as the problem. Which gives Aguirre the Wrath of God the distinct status of being amongst the first films to unilaterally critique European exploration and exploitation of the Americas, Africa and Australia. No doubt that perspective influenced Francis Ford Coppola when he transformed Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness into Apocalypse Now. And Aguirre's influence can also be seen in Roland Joffe's The Mission, which investigated the 18th century Jesuitical conversion of the indigenous and now nearly extinct Guarani people in Paraguay. In addition to a post-colonial position and a river, another thing that Aguirre shares with the mission and Apocalypse Now is the duress under which it was made. For the mission, while on location at the Iguazu Falls in Brazil, almost the entire cast and crew were struck down with amoebic dysentery. Nonetheless, producer David Putnam submitted it as a work in progress to the 1986 Cannes Film Festival, where it duly won the Palme d'Or. But even though it later earned seven Oscar nominations, the company that financed it, Goldcrest, soon filed for bankruptcy, some of which was caused by the cost overruns on the film's production. As for Apocalypse Now, typhoons, earthquakes, a heart attack suffered by Martin Sheen, to whom the last rites were administered, and finally Marlon Brando turning up on set, having read neither the script nor the novel, saw the budget explode from 12 million to more than 30 a lot of which Francis Ford Coppola had to pay for by mortgaging almost all the assets he had secured from the fortune he had earned from making The Godfather and its sequel. Just one small step looking for a man that wants to be President of the United States and having the cash to make it possible. Michael, we're bigger than US Steel. By comparison to those mega budgets, Aguirre the Wrath of God cost all of $370,000. One way Herzog was able to keep the budget so low was by not commissioning a score. Instead, he chose music that had been composed without even the slightest inkling that it would ever be set to images. Which is rather like what John Borman did the very same year with his own river movie, Deliverance.
Iguera the Wrath of God was not the first film to use exclusively pre-composed music, but the way Herzog deployed it undoubtedly affected other filmmakers. Think of Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island. For the Guerde, Herzog selected the music of German band Popol Vuh, whose electronic bass sound positioned them firmly within the avant-garde movement. Released in 1970, their first album, Offenstunde, was heavily influenced by the space programme that had just seen NASA put a man on the moon. There, they fused the then cutting-edge technology of the Moog synthesizer with African percussion. But for their follow-up, in the Garden of the Pharaohs, they mixed in the sound of water, and it was that connection that suggested to Herzog that their music might complement his images. Herzog's instinct was right, and in all, Popelvu would go on to score another seven of Herzog's films. The name Popelvu can be sourced to the mountainous regions where modern-day Guatemala borders Mexico. Although the name translates into English as Book of the People, the story it tells predates Spain's colonisation of Central and South America in the 15th century. In fact, it was in response to the European invasion that the indigenous Quiche Maya people put into written words what had been their oral history. And so the Popol Vuh manuscript provides a crucial link to the ancient mythologies of Mesoamerica. And it was into that ancient world Aguirre and his fellow conquistadors came in search of gold. The film opens with a view of the Machu Picchu mountain range at an altitude of some 14,000 feet. The image, lensed by cinematographer Thomas Mauch, who would light another nine pictures for Herzog, shows us the peaks covered in cloud. Then editor Beata Menke-Ellenhaus, who worked with Herzog on over 20 films, cuts to another angle. Grey rock face, with a vertical drop of over 2,000 feet, is mottled with greenery, shrubs that cling to the edifice. Then we see faint threads of movement, small objects descending at steep angles. It takes a moment to figure out what they are, but then we realise these are people, tracing narrow paths carved into the mountainside. They scurry about like ants, faceless, nameless workers serving a nest, all seeking the famed El Dorado. Riches await, if only they can find it. And just as the men descend the mountain, their search will bring them even lower pulling them into a barbarity and eventual insanity as Aguirre murders their leader and assumes authority. Over the course of the entire film, that trajectory brings the camera gradually closer, so we end up with a different landscape, a view of Aguirre's face. 
Now considering himself a god, his eyes bulge as if possessed. His face lined so heavily, he resembles an etching by Alberich Durer. His futile quest for El Dorado has so consumed him that the mythical land has eaten into him and hollowed him out, leaving us with a new terrain to consider. The craven avarice that motivated the plundering of South America has left Aguirre alone and adrift on a raft, surrounded by a crowd of tiny primates, somewhere, nowhere, a wretched soul exposed and abandoned on the great Amazon River. <laughs>